Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton. As the premier independent bookstore in the Hamptons, Bookhampton has a highly curated selection of books for readers of all ages, unique one-of-a-kind gifts, and exciting author events. Browse their fabulous staff suggestions online at bookhampton.com. I'm excited to be here today with Kathy Wong. Kathy is a graduate of UC Berkeley and Harvard Business School. Kathy spent years working in the tech industry at Intel and Seagate before writing her first novel, Family Trust. She currently lives with her husband and two children in the Bay Area, where she's working on her second novel. Also, just a friendly reminder, please subscribe to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And it would be great if you could follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much. Welcome to Kathy. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. So Kathy, can you tell listeners what Family Trust is about? What made you want to write this novel and what is it about? So Family Trust is essentially, it's kind of like a multi-generational family saga. It centers on an Asian American family, like kind of upper middle class in Silicon Valley. The patriarch gets a kind of terminal illness diagnosis and it kind of follows the various players as they struggle with this diagnosis and what it means. So there is a adult children in this and who have their own lives and their own problems. There's the first wife who kind of built up his so-called fortune with him. And then there's his younger second wife who has been with him for some time and is, you know, finding caring for an older dying man a little bit more troubled than than she had anticipated. (laughs) And so that in a nutshell is the story. What made me want to write this story, I mean, this story actually just began actually with one of the characters um, whose name is Fred. He is an HBS grad uh, who's kind of struggling 
struggling with his career in, in Silicon Valley. And I guess for me, when I wrote this at the time, like I was definitely at the stage in my career and so are my peers where, you know, I think when you graduate from college, you, you go, you, you kind of go along this very established path. You know, you, you graduate from a good school and you, you get a good job and then you go to a good graduate school and then you go to a good job after that. But then all of a sudden, I think your career kind of stops for a lot of people. You know, you stop going up. And, you know, I think a lot of us have been told that we'll continue to go up. And then you actually realize that actually, you know, for a lot of us, it's, it's you're not, you're, you know, maybe you're just going to, you're going to plateau there. Or maybe you're even going to start taking a few steps down. Right. And so that was something that I was going through at the time. And what really fascinated me was just how the men were handling this phenomenon um, versus the woman. You know, I think uh, they had very different ways of dealing with this disappointment. And um, it was just something that I was obsessed with. And so from there, I just started writing one of the characters and then it kind of grew. So interesting. And you deliberately put your career on hold, not sort of a stalling as you describe it for Fred, but you put your career on hold as a tech manager after your son was born. And that's how you wrote this book. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, my husband had this job at the time where he was probably traveling like half the month. And then, you know, we had had a baby and it was just very, I just couldn't figure out how to make it work like in going back to work. And so um, I ended up staying home and, you know, I definitely felt really weird about it. Like I was the only person in my entire section who was not working. (laughs) And so you definitely feel, you know, you definitely have feelings about it. And so, yeah, definitely. For listeners, Kathy and I both went to the same business school, Harvard Business School, and not many people, A, are novelists slash writers, and not many people choose to stay home with their kids. Well, actually, is that even true? I'm not even sure. It happens later on. Later on, like once they have their second, I feel like that's, mm-hmm. then a lot of people are just like, this is too. Yeah. And then a lot of, mainly women, I think they they kind of step away. Yeah. yeah. But the the idea of, of writing a book about, you know, what happens when you're not as successful as you once thought you should be, I think is so interesting because I've personally found now that I'm in my, you know, in my 40s and people are sort of looking at their careers more analytically. The people who are really struggling with where they've ended up are having sort of the most difficult time of it in sort of every realm of their lives. Do you find that too? Do you mean like at home and at work? Yeah, I feel like um, I feel like especially for people who have been told their whole lives that they're these achievers and to keep going and they have great educations and they start out with great jobs and then they sort of don't fulfill the potential that they believe they can. I don't know. I've been I feel like it does so much to self-esteem for those people. I mean, more so than totally. I, I agree with you, actually. And I think a lot of them, you know, when I mean, when I was at HBS, I think most people are not married yet, for example. And so they're like, well, I, I rock it at school. And so when I get married, I'm going to be great at that. And then when I have kids, I'm going to be yeah. great at that. And then, you know, that, that actually happens. And, you know, I think there's going to be failures right along the way. And I think that they have a hard time, like you say, managing that as well. Yeah, I guess that was my long way of saying yeah. people have a hard time managing failure. No, totally. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Although now that we've been talking, I've been thinking about different, particularly women who I was in school with who have, after having kids, have started really creative, interesting careers, not necessarily the the straightforward jobs that they had right after graduating. But yeah, no, I don't know. I think anyway, I not to say that people aren't working, but anyway. <laughs> I understand. 
All to say, I think that's a great uh, starting point for a novel, which is probably why it turned into such an amazing novel. So, um, (laughs) and apparently, so you wrote this book while your son was napping in the afternoons. Is that true? I feel like I can't even get through my emails during nap time. I mean, not that I even. Yes. I mean, I feel like, cause you know, that that was like that one article that came out from my hometown newspaper. And it was so funny because the woman (laughs) who interviewed me, I mean, she had a young child, so she was like really focused on that point. Right. But so it's just kind of, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it was, I mean, I guess the one thing that I don't know if it comes across is I did write it when he was napping that year, but I mean, it was really fueled by a very deep sense of desperation. I mean, it was just like, I just was, you know, I just needed to have something that I was, that was mine, you know, that I was doing on my own. That was something that I could like a little hobby or something. So I, I did do it while he was napping, but I mean, at times it was really miserable for me, right? Like he would be like, <laughs> you know, I would try to do everything while he was awake, like, you know, like watch me wash the dishes. And then he would like have a, you know, meltdown. And, you know, it's, I mean, it was, it was definitely not that, that easy. <laughs> <laughs> and there are lots of hobbies you can take up, right? Why this one? What was it about writing or writing a novel in particular that really appealed to you? I mean, it's definitely like a bucket list item for me that I wanted to try to write a book. And so, you know, I didn't know what my life would be like after I had two kids. Maybe I'd go back to like a full time like corporate career. So I was just like, you know, this is maybe the last time I'll have a big chunk of time for for quite a while. So um, that's essentially what pushed me to write it. You know, and I, I think that like any writer, too, I, I'm a big reader. And you know, it was just always something that I was interested in. And had you written any short fiction or anything or you just literally dove in? I hadn't. So I hadn't, you know, I, I hadn't had any like publications, you know, and the thing was like, I had looked at, I was like, Ooh, well maybe I'll just like go to one of those programs. Yeah. Everett has a program or like a fellowship, but you know, all of those require like letters of recommendation and examples of your writing. And I didn't have any of that. And so I was like, well, I guess, you know, I have like almost like no choice, but to just try to write like a longer piece. Yeah. Maybe there's something to be said for the freedom because I don't know, whatever recipe you uh, <laughs> you had for your book ended up with such success. Okay. And I, I don't want to quote your hometown paper again, but can you tell me a little more about the process of selling your book and how that all went down? Yeah. So, you know, I had just used Google for everything. So I didn't have like beta readers or anything. And that's, I mean, I think, you know, it's like when you have a young kid, you can't really meet up to do these like things at like, you know, like 1 p.m. or something. So I had just, you know, done the whole spreadsheet thing. I think HBS people like spreadsheets where you, you know, have the list of the agents and everything. And then once my, I thought my book was in kind of like a decent shape, I started sending out the query letters. And, you know, those are essentially those letters that you cold call agents with to try to get them to be interested in your book. From there, um, I eventually got an agent and then, you know, the novel went on submission, I think pretty quickly after. I mean, she had a few kind of comments on it. But I think we turned it around in like maybe three or four weeks and then she, she went on submission to the publishing houses. And how did you feel when you negotiated your final deal and the ink was the dried on the contract? Were you just over the moon or could you believe it? I mean, so, you know, when I signed the contract, like, you know, I had probably gotten, like, I had like just given birth. So my, like, I was like not sleeping. So it was almost like a non-event. I mean, it's an event, but it was just like, you know, I was like probably sleeping like three hours a night you know, with the baby yelling and then like the toddlers acting up. And so you're just like, I mean, it was wonderful, but I almost don't remember it. It's just, you know, in that haze of that period, we don't really remember anything from when your kids are like little, really young. And so one thing that I do remember is that that was when I told my mom that I had written a book. Like I didn't tell her anything until I had received a contract from Harper College. 
Because <laughs> I knew if like something fell through, I would forever be like reminded, like, what happened to that book you said you know, you're going to write? So uh, I remember when I finally got the digital contract was when I told her I had written something. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> well, let's talk about the matriarch of the family in this book, Family Trust, Linda Liang, uh, the sort of this typical mom, except that she and her husband or former husband, Stanley, have, have gotten divorced. Stanley's with another sort of younger woman. And yet she's obviously still the mom to the two grown children. And when Stanley goes through an illness, she plays like a very interesting role. Like you don't see this a lot, right? What it's like for the ex-wife when the former husband slash dad is, is ill. And that was really interesting relationship to examine. And then you made me laugh so much when she, Linda starts dating online with this Tiger Lily app. And she goes on a date finally with somebody she had met and says, in person, Norman looked like his photos, albeit older. When she first saw him, Linda was struck by a grim fear that she too appeared that aged and scuttled to the bathroom to reassure herself. She pet her face in the mirror. She didn't think she looked that bad. She thought she might still even be able to pull off handsome, but there was nothing she could do about it either way. She applied a fresh coat of lipstick. (laughs) I just love that paragraph. It's like so well written. So you just feel yourself in that moment. You're like in the bathroom with her. It's like just so perfect about aging and beauty. And it just encapsulated so much right there. So tell me more about Linda's character and and how you chose to write her. Well, first of all, thank you for your your kind words. Linda, I mean, I think Linda's like a very, I mean, I hate to say, I mean, she's a, you know, I think many Asian Americans will read this and be like, that's my mother. And that's how my mother is. You know, she's very practical. She's not very sentimental. She's very focused. She's very results focused. She's not a hugger. You know, she's not going to praise you. She he wants the best for her kids, but, you know, it, it's going to come out in a much more kind of direct, blunt fashion than more maybe stereotypically American kind of cheerleading style. So that's essentially her. And, you know, she was responsible for a lot of the financial success with her first husband. And then, you know, they got divorced. And now she's seeing that maybe everything that she built up, which, you know, obviously he walked away with half with, is, is going to go not to his, the adult children that, you know, are her children and his children, but actually to his, his younger second wife. Something else that is just interesting to me after having published the book is, you know, I think from a, there's, there's very different viewpoints, I think, on that younger second wife in Chinese culture versus American culture, I want to say. Like in Chinese culture, I mean, as a, and I'm kind of being stereotypical. I mean, I'm cliche stereotyping, but I think when an older man marries a younger woman, in Chinese culture, everyone's kind of like, yeah, like that's, you know, there's a deal going on there. Everyone knows it. You know, she wants a lifestyle and he wants, you know, companionship from someone young and pretty. I think in American culture, it seems to be like, it needs to be about true love, you know, or there has mm-hmm, to be this, mm-hmm. oh, well, it's, it's love, you know, you know, money is not even in the equation. And so, you know, when she's dealing with the discussion of his inheritance or his will, I mean, to her, it's just a normal conversation that you have. But it's just interesting because I, you know, I get emails from American readers and they're like, what's wrong with her? <laughs> I just, it's just funny because with Asians, it's not even something that's a problem. Wow. No, I was definitely surprised reading that. That was, uh, it's like, that's bold. (laughs) Was your mom similar to Linda in how she raised you or her sort of general affect? Did you base it off of your own family at all? Or, um, you know, my mom is definitely like a certain kind of, yeah. I mean, she's, she's like my friends growing up, they called her like Asian wasp. Like she's just very, you mm-hmm. know, a certain way. And she's, you know, everything has to be very proper. So she's definitely similar to Linda in some, in some respects and definitely, I think in her bearing. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite 
of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And how about Fred, the disillusioned business school graduate who's sort of struggling? I feel like, you know, when you had his girlfriend, Erica, sort of stretch the truths about him, it's almost like what he wishes had happened, right? Like the things that she writes, even though he cringes when he, you know, reads it on Twitter or whatever. I think he would be happy with the with the version that she has of him in her head. You know what I mean? Yeah. And how did that come about? You know, Fred is actually my favorite character, but he's the one that I think most people dislike the most, you know? Mm-hmm. But he's actually you know, it's funny, I hear I, you know, quite a few like of my ex HBS, I mean my friends from HBS have read it and all the Asian guys are like, Yeah, this is a normal man. <laughs> like he's normal but so I guess I guess he's my favorite because I feel like he's very he's very true to life Mm -hmm. and I wanted to write him because I don't feel like there's a lot of Asian American men that are described in uh, fiction that's probably true you know another author Alyssa Friedland who wrote The Intermission spoke to my book group the other day and she said that a lot of people had said to her about her characters you know I'm not sure I like them you know I don't I'm not sure your character is very likable and she's like that's okay. Like that wasn't, my goal was not to make my character somebody you want to like, you know, that actually wasn't at all what I was going for. So that's good. You know? So I think there's a lot, a lot to be said for, I mean, you don't have to like everyone, like just being exposed to some of these characters is, is fantastic in and of itself. They don't have to be somebody you want to be best friends with necessarily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about Kate, the daughter. So Kate is like the typical nice girl or she was, you know, she feels she's the nice girl to so many others. And then you actually write, what did it mean to be nice? Nice was a label that had been foisted on Kate since childhood. You're great, Denny had said way back then, like actually nice, not like so many other Asian women. But then soon after, you say, it was the times that she was a bitch, Kate thought now, that she had really excelled. So I was wondering about this sort of dichotomy between the nice girl and then the bitchy sort of successful girl. Do you feel that that's Silicon Valley, you know, must have type of thing? Or was it just Kate herself that you found interesting as a character and wanted to portray that way without any sort of more generalized sort of societal commentary? Mm, I think maybe maybe it's not. I mean, certainly it's a, it's in the case in Asians. I mean, I think a lot of women have this problem, right? In Silicon Valley where you have to be very, I mean, in any, a lot of industries where you're supposed to be nice. I mean, I, I think banking is its own separate kind of world there where I think the women have to maybe behave a little differently. But in the Valley, I think you have to be, pl- 
pleasant, right? Like people want to have to work mm-hmm. with you. And, you know, especially when you're like in a business function and, you know, so much of your job here is, is working with engineering talent and working with software and all that. I mean, they have to like you for you to get a a result. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that that's so much of your job. I think being Asian American, there's a stereotype that you're very shy, you're very sweet, you know, you're soft spoken and, you know, but like, you know, Asians just like, I mean, you know, they're, I mean, thinking like awful, awful things all the time. I mean, it's funny, like when a bunch of Asian people get together, like their conversation can be so mean, you know, <laughs> and like the things are said and then, you know, you go back into your office, you know, with other white people maybe, and then, you know, you're a totally different person. You know, I think that's something that's experienced by a lot of minorities, I think, right? Where, you know, you, you have your real self that comes out maybe with people you're more comfortable with and you go back into the workplace and you, you know, you assume your other identity. I just think for Asian Americans, probably pigeonholed a lot and that have to be the more nice conciliatory type of role. Hmm. I bet people, some people could argue like any group of friends who's really close can get together and sort of gab and be who they really are. Yeah. But a lot, a lot of people have to put on, you know, at least some sort of veneer of <laughs> civility totally, at work, totally. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So this novel was so great and so rich in so many relationships and aspects and family and everything else. I mean, it really sort of had it all, which was fantastic. And your book deal, I guess, included two books. So I was wondering if you could talk at all about your next book. You know, I mean, the next one, and I, I'm sure you've heard this on like many, from many people, it's like such a struggle. <laughs> Just like, I feel like I used up, everything for the when I think back to the book I'm like man I should have like not included this part because like like I, <laughs> I just wasted it there and I like, made it this full-blown thing in the, in the second book and now I can't and so I mean I'm still struggling a lot with it I probably have written like 200,000 words and like I just none of it and it's not working so I am now trying something else and you know hopefully it'll you know be work out okay but um yeah, it's definitely a struggle to do to do the second. And I think my personality is that, you know, I, I have the second that's due and, you know, I, I, it's like looming over me all, all the time that I need to come up with a second book. And when you sold the second book, did you have to agree on what it was about or can it be about anything? I mean, there was like a, I had no pages. So it was just literally like, you know, I had said something and they're like, okay. Um, but I think, I mean, I, I think the directive is, kind of that it can be about anything within reason you know I mean I don't I don't know what's going to happen when I deliver like a vampire thing or something well right of yeah. course no I mean <laughs> <laughs> but um hopefully hopefully it will be hopefully they'll accept whatever I come up with but you know you see these all the time where like the first one is comes out and the second one doesn't come out for like 10 years you know and, and so I'm like oh my gosh I wonder if that's gonna be me well I feel like it's so much harder you know it's one thing to to write and be creative sort of in the privacy of your own home if you don't know you know 100 yeah. where it's going mm-hmm. but it's it's almost like you're like standing in the middle of Times Square and every word you think of is being like broadcast out I mean that's a lot of pressure right <laughs> like yeah I feel like there there has to be some sort of like suspension of disbelief type of thing where you're like, well, no one's actually going to read this. So I'm just going to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, and then go back and yeah. like, you have to fool yourself. I think, I feel like you'd have to fool yourself into, into getting this sort of authenticity of the first book. Yeah. Completely. I, I mean, that's just me. I don't know. I feel like when people, when I know people are about to read something, I, I get very self-conscious about it. Whereas when I'm writing from the heart, it just like flows out of me. I don't know if you're the same way. No, completely. You know, I, I, I totally agree. You know, I mean, I think that's something that's really interesting to me is like, I'm not really like a user of Twitter. <laughs> like I never used mm-hmm. it before I wrote this book and everyone's like, oh, you have to use Twitter because, you know, everyone in publishing uses it. So like I'm on Twitter, I, I normally lurk a lot and I'll see people like tweet 
And then like the tweet will disappear. Like they decided not to do it and then they delete it. And like then, you know, cause they realize it's going to be out there. And then, you know, and, and I feel like you, you can't write a book thinking that way. Do you know what I mean? It's like, maybe that yeah. that's like really good stuff probably, or that was a controversial tweet that they did that they decided to delete, but that's the stuff that's like really good in a book. And so if you yeah. keep just freaking yourself out that, you know, someone's going to hate it or take offense to it, I think, yeah, a lot of times it's, it's too difficult to keep going. I actually just finished writing this memoir, which I have now decided I can't sell. But oh. anyway, I know it's a long story. But anyway, three quarters of the way through, you know, even my husband who read it can tell he's like, this is when you realize that maybe it wasn't just you who was going to read this. Uh. <laughs> like, like my whole like style and my agent and everybody, they were like, okay, this is what happened here. And I'm like, I don't know. I just started panicking. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. anyway, obviously my tiny little story it pales in comparison to your like major deal no. with the publisher and everything. But all, all to say, I relate to that feeling and I'm sure you will come out of it soon. And oh. I, I also think like, you know, for sort of type A, and I'm making assumptions about you here, but I'm assuming you're sort of more like a type A, you know, overachiever that I can like relate to in that way. And having something not be perfect is almost unbearable, you know? So I, I, you know, but creative things sometimes just end up not being that way at first, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of rambling here. No, but. completely. You know, I get emails from like HBS people who, who like secretly want to write like a book, you know, and they just can't get past like the second page or whatever because they, they read, they write it and they, they have to read it and they're like, oh, this sucks you know, and then you want everything to be perfect right away. You know, they, they're not, they don't understand how, how truly bad, like the first draft is going to have to be. Yeah. And no matter how much advice you get from other people, I mean, every author I've had on here, when I ask for advice to young, to aspiring writers, everyone says, just write, just, you just have to start writing, just do it. And yet when I try it, I'm like, oh, but I can't, oh, but what should it be about? Oh, but wait, the jacket cut. Oh, but wait, you know? So I don't know. I think our minds get the better of us at times, but Anyway, (laughs) so do you feel like your life has changed since the book came out? I mean, it's gotten such amazing attention from the media and, you know, it's such a great book. How is it now that it's out there? I mean, I think it's the same for me. Like, I mean, I live in like a suburb in Bay Area, so I'm not like in a big writing community. So, I mean, it's the same for me. Like I'm like trapped in my house with my kids. I'm like, I just don't, (laughs) like, you know, like I I didn't do a book tour, for example. You know, I'm, for the listeners out there, you know, like these days, I think unless you're like a really major publisher, like, I mean, I'm author, I don't think publishers really like fund book tours right. anymore, right? Things. And so, I um, you know, I didn't do one. Um, I mean, so I'm just doing kind of a few events and then, but otherwise everything's basically the same for me. There's not a much, much that has changed. I mean, an author, like even the most famous author in the world, which I certainly am not, is still like not, it's like a below a Z-list celebrity. So <laughs> I feel like there's just, you know, there's nothing that's really too different. I know that's the thing I, I like can't understand. You can walk into a room full of the most brilliant, accomplished authors and no one will even know who they are you know it's it's insane it's it's just like it's just crazy I feel like there should be so much more attention that's part of why I do this podcast is just to give writers a platform because you know great books like yours might just like fall from the radar if if the people don't hear about it right I mean getting the word out is so important so Anyway. No, I mean, I totally, and you know what's interesting? I mean, also, I, I mean, I hate to keep going back to like the fact that we both went to business school, but like, you know, I feel like when I learned about how much like even very famous authors sometimes get paid, you know, you're like, dude, like that's like a, 
mid-level whatever at it, like a bank or something, you know, like you're like the highest achieving, like artistic mind is being like, is being compensated at, you know, the same level as like, I don't know, like a McKinsey. First year. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, like this is just a, I don't want to say unfair, but it's a different world. There was a recent article that said the medium salary for writers is $21,000 a year. Yes. Yeah. I saw that too. It's like, come on. Yeah. I'm like, this is this is fair. Like, yeah. is this how we value the contribution? Like, I feel like yeah. if I curl up with a good book and it amuses me for like 12 hours and makes me think and transports me to this other world, like I would pay so much more yeah. than I would even for a movie for that. I mean, think about, I don't know. I anyway, agree. Yeah. Life is not always fair, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just saw that. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was incredible. Incredible. I mean, in a bad right. way. So was Crazy. Just... No, I know. I just, I can't believe yeah. it. You know, I also remember in some operations class at business school that I took, there was somebody who was a writer or some in some way, you know, doing some sort of writing something. And I remember them saying that they viewed themselves as just a producer of any other product, but their product was words. Okay. Yeah. And so they approached it like, you know, they were just going to market it as if it was, you know, the latest iPhone or, you know, a new pair of shoes or whatever else like yeah. that the words like that the end product was no different in a way it's like yeah so. that's interesting yeah yeah anyway so that's basically all I learned about writing from business school. <laughs> I don't know about you yeah, <laughs> anyway so now that I've talked a lot about you know other advice I've gotten from writers but what advice would you have to somebody just starting out I mean yours is such a inspiring story that it can be done that you can just like take a go and have it really pay off? What would you tell other people who are attempting it? I think that my advice would be, so like just, you know, backpedaling a little bit, like I keep this like journal, it's like a five-year journal. So every, you know, every day you can look back and see how you felt a year ago on the same day and two years ago. And it's funny because like after I finished the book, like you forget a lot about how much work it is. But you know, when I go back and read the entries from when I was writing it, I mean, I think I felt like a failure a lot of the time. And I felt like the book was failing, that I was failing, that things weren't working out, like that there are these huge plot holes that I was not going to be able to figure out. And I think my advice would be that when, you know, when you're writing your book, I think you're going to feel that level of failure and, and, and that the project can't be completed and that there's no way that this is going to be publishable. And I think my advice would just be like, you have to understand that that is a feeling that you, you, you have to have in order to move forward into a publishable product from my perspective, you know, like it's entirely normal and it's necessary. So if you feel that way, just know that, you know, that I think that's a feeling that I think a lot of writers have. And, and, you know, I think a lot of writers have that feeling with every single book that they write. So it's normal. And, you know, don't feel that that is necessarily like a pronouncement on the ultimate like publishability of your, of your work. Right. It's just um, it's part of the process. Or, or maybe your book is just terrible. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I was trying to end it on. <laughs> that is always the possibility. There is always a possibility. <laughs> But we're assuming that everybody out there is writing really great books. So that's not not going to be the case. <laughs> what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I just finished reading An Anonymous Girl by Greer Hendricks and Sarah How Pekinen. Was How it was, was good. I'm interviewing them tomorrow. So um, okay. it's good. It's a page turner. Okay. It's a, I read I don't, their, oh, their earlier one. Yeah. I don't oh. usually read thrillers, but it was good. I was like, why don't I usually read thrillers? So. I like, you know, thrillers. Like, I, I mean, I think there's a huge market when they're like, they're well-written, right? Like, you know, they're just, I guess you have to have like a minimum level of readability, you know? But I mean, I think they did a great job with The Wife Between Us. Is that the one? I read it, yeah. And, and so I just finished um, A Terrible Country. Okay, how was it? 
by Keith Gesson. It was, it was good. I mean, because I, I had like an interest in Russia. So I had gone there for about a month. And so it was, it was interesting to me. And so I didn't know anything about Keith Gesson before I, I, I read it. And then I Googled him and he's like this literati person. And so I didn't know any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was interesting. But, but yeah, I mean, thank you so much for having me on. I think it's amazing that you do this series. Oh, thanks. Thanks for coming on. And please, like, I mean, I think you should try your memoir. By the way. Oh, I think I'm going to rewrite it as a novel and then I feels like maybe I'll have a little more freedom. Yeah. That's always a, that's always a good way to, I just don't really know how to write fiction, but it didn't stop you and you did a great job. No, so. <laughs> I think you, you know more than you think. I mean, given everything that you read, like how much you read. And so, yeah, yeah. you'd hope. No. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, thank, thank you so me. much. It was really great chatting. Okay. All right. Have a good day. Take, Bye. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton, bookhampton.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.